abnormal art and monstrous creations brought to life. Frankenfest, a new festival showcasing mad, magical, and mystical artwork, exhibits, and attractions, authors, haunt aficionados, and paranormal experts. Frankenfest arrives in Detroit at historic Fort Wayne on September 18th. For more details, visit frankenfest.com. Hey, 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 Elon. Hey, Casey. Welcome back to another episode of Sinister, Strange, and Suspicious. Yay! So, this was, like, the worst week I've had in a long time. Yeah, it definitely I, uh, was. I'm, I'm glad it's over. We're mm -hmm. I'm happy to be looking at a new week. Exactly. That last week was very emotionally taxing. Yes. For, my gosh. Like for our entire everybody. everybody. Like our whole our whole little microcosm of family and like everyone we're close to it was just very it was a very emotional week. Yeah. With lots of change and hard stuff. But we got through it. We did it. We mm -hmm. made it. So would you like to hear some dad jokes? Of course I would. How do you cure a sick bird? How? With treatment. Oh, God. Why did the cookie go to the doctor? Uh, why? He felt crummy. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes me think of, like, second and third grade. I know. Oh, gosh. I'm going to tell that one to the boys. I think they'll like it. Definitely. They will absolutely love that. What did the doctor say to the sick apple? What? Don't worry. We will get to the core of this. Oh, my God. What do you give a sick lemon? What? Lemonade. I hate that. I hate that one so much. <laughs> I hate it so, so very much. What do you give a pig with an owie? Oh, God. What? Oinkment. <laughs> that one's cute. And the last. Okay. Why did the beekeeper go to the doctor? Why? Because they had hives. Of course. Yay. Well, they could always give him some Benadryl. <laughs> oh, no. Uh-huh. Oh, no. I got one back for you that day. Man. <laughs> this is evolution. Right? The turns have tabled. <laughs> <laughs> so, today we're talking about psychos with scalpels. Hell yes. This... I love, I love this as a topic. Me too, me too. Because there's a lot of uh, medical professionals that just, it's an interesting Venn diagram of medical professionals who also happen to be murderers. It's true, and it's terrifying. It is. It's really interesting. All right, so you're going to go first today. I am. And I cannot wait. All right. So... As pretty much everyone knows, we have a deep affinity for nurses. Yes. The, some of the most important people in our mutual friend group, the ones that we are closest with, tend to be nurses, educators, and therapists. Correct. The ladies I work with are literally some of the best humans I know, as are our friends who've been busting their asses for almost two years now. Mm-hmm. What we've also learned during the pandemic is that this particular profession seems to attract an impressively diverse group of people with very different motives. The majority of nurses are the most compassionate, caring people you could ever hope to meet. The others, not so much. 
The respect and importance given to health professions can also attract those seeking power and control over the vulnerable, which unsurprisingly also includes a decent amount of murderers too. One such nurse was Jane Toppin. Oh, Jane. Yep. What are you doing? Yep. This is... She's... Honestly, she's impressive. I'm not even gonna lie. Uh, she is the epitome of fake it till you make it. Honora Kelly was born to Bridget and Peter Kelly, March 31st, I'm sorry, 1854, in Boston. There's not much to be found about Bridget besides her cause of death, which was tuberculosis slash consumption early in Honora's life, but there's a bit more known about Peter. He was apparently a bit of a character, and he there were quite a few entertaining stories involving him over the years, but... Um, the man had a problem with alcohol and also was, by all accounts, a violent, abusive man. Oh, man, aren't they all? Right? So there were a handful of stories about very odd things he did, but there was one that captured my attention because it began in his workplace. Peter Kelly was working at a tailor shop, and as legend has it, he was starting to lose touch with reality. One day, he completely lost the plot and decided to sew his eyelids shut using a large embroidery needle and thread. Oh, he was institutionalized as a result. Understandable. But he was released later. Mm. So in 1860, Honora and her three sisters were staying with their paternal grandmother because obviously dad, is, dad was institutionalized and was not in a way that he could take care of the girls. Unfortunately, she wasn't really equipped to care for them either due to her age and uh, maybe some illnesses that weren't really determined. The girls ended up having some severe hygiene problems and were extremely malnourished. Mm. Their father, Peter, took notice, and in the only real act of paternal love in this story, he wrote and then brought the girls to the Boston Female Asylum and begged them to take Honora and Delia. So, Honora was six, Delia was eight. The sisters were brought before the admittance board and after the members took one look at the state they were in, the all-female board allowed the girls to stay at the asylum due to obvious neglect and possible abuse. Oh my goodness. It was a unanimous vote, and the girls never saw their father again. Wow. So, the Boston Female Asylum is not what it sounds like it is. It was an orphanage that took in children who otherwise would have likely ended up dead or worse. The mission was to receive, protect, and instruct female orphans until the age of 10 years when they were placed in respectable families. As the girls in the asylum's care grew up, they were taught to handle households, learning to cook, clean, launder, and sew. They were taught a trade, essentially. The families the girls were placed with, it was really less of an adoption, more indentured servitude. Oh, man. Yeah. They did that a lot back then. They did. The girls were usually given the surname of the family they were purchased by, but it wasn't completely awful since being part of a respectable household, even as an injured servant, meant that their life prospects were much better than other girls that started in the same situation. Sure. They received education, care, and their basic needs were met. As Delia was older, she left first. It's not entirely clear who she was indentured to or what happened during her youth, but she ended up in the oldest profession and uh, died pretty young, like mid-20s. Mm, poor thing. Yeah. In 1864, Honora was indentured to Mrs. Ann Toppin by the asylum, which was interesting because the placement was really early since Honora was only like seven or eight. 
She joined the Toppin household at the time, changing her name to Jane Toppin. Throughout her time in the Toppin household, Jane was treated extremely cruelly by her foster mother. Mm. The Toppin's daughter, Elizabeth, was quite kind to Jane. She never mistreated her, but that didn't really stop Jane from developing this deep, seething hatred of her foster sister. According to rumor, this was largely due to Elizabeth's perceived freedom to marry whoever she chose, basically. Her, her uh, marriage prospects were way better than Jane's were. Mm-hmm. And this was partially substantiated by a story that came from Jane and others that knew her at the time that she was once engaged to an office worker who broke off their relationship after he moved to another town and fell in love with the daughter of his landlord and then married her. Like, Ugh. really short order. Rude. Right? Compared to Elizabeth's prospects as legitimate daughter of a wealthy family, Jane's husband pickings were pretty slim. On top of being lower class, she was first generation Irish Catholic in a time and location that did not appreciate either one of those qualities. Mm. To survive among the largely Protestant circles the Toppins moved in, Jane had to reinvent herself. She denied both her heritage and religion, spun complex tales of her origins, and was by all accounts a spirited and vivacious girl. Most of her schoolmates, they kind of held her at arm's length, but for those that she became friends with, um, they liked her, pretty much. And then the others just really disliked her a great deal, but this is partially because she started to pin her misbehavior on other kids and leading some of them to receive undue punishment. So, I mean, she's not going to be cool with me if I got my ass beat for something she did. Um, I, I, I get it. So, all the while... She's still suffering maltreatment from Mrs. Toppin and facing unbridled cruelty from the young members of the upper crust mm. that she so desperately wanted to be part of. In 1874, Jane's contract with the Toppins was fulfilled and she was released at 18 years old. Per the indenturement agreement, she was given $50 and was free to do as she pleased. She chose to stay on as a full servant member of the Toppin household for about a decade, even staying on after Anne Toppin died. So then Elizabeth, the Toppin's daughter, married a local deacon named Ormel Brigham. Jane stayed on for a little while and left the now Brigham home in 1885. Exactly what led Jane to leave was never really clear, but Ormel and Elizabeth said that she was free to come home at any time. Aww. For reference, she was about 28 then. So 1887, Jane enrolls in nursing school at Boston's Cambridge, uh, yeah, Cambridge Hospital. Her patients absolutely loved her, but the staff were not nearly as fond. The other trainee nurses did not care for her, and she began to gain a reputation for gossip and shady shit, similar to when she was in school. Jane's tactic of lying about literally every aspect of her origin seems to be the common denominator. Uh, while the patients called her Jolly Jane, the other nursing students eyed her with suspicion. There were even rumors that Jane was a thief, but they were never really proven. So as Jane built her skills and experience at Cambridge Hospital, she began to really get into her work. She found enjoyment in caring for others and how important she was to them, especially how dependent they were on her. So like, we all kind of know where this is headed, right? Yeah. All right. When Jane found a patient she liked, which they were usually elderly and extremely ill. Sure they were. Yeah. Fra extremely fragile people seemed to be her, her uh, favorite. She would either alter their medical charts or give them small doses of unnecessary medication so they would be hospitalized longer. 
after doing this for a while and never getting caught, Jolly Jane got a bit bolder. Oh no, mm -hmm. as they do, they always do. They always do. This was testing the limits early on. She took it upon herself to conduct experiments on the patients in her care. She would alternate doses of morphine and atropine, which is the same chemical used to dilate pupils during eye exams. Oh my God. Um, but at the time it was used as an anesthetic because it is made primarily of belladonna extract. Nice. Mm -hmm. So like I said, at the time it was a common anesthetic, which fun fact I learned during the research for this episode, there is a mnemonic to describe the symptoms of an atropine overdose that I kind of love. Okay. It goes hot as a hair, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, red as a beet, and mad as a hatter. So this notes the warm, dry skin, blurry vision, decreased eye moisture, vasodilation, and the central nervous system effects common to an atropine overdose. So our girl Jane was basically giving her patients massive overdoses of different medications just to watch the effects. She preferred atropine because the symptoms of overdose were much more animated than those of morphine. God. Mm -hmm. She also enjoyed laying in the hospital beds with her victims while they suffered from her experiments. Like, she would literally get in the bed next to them. Wow. Yeah. It is commonly believed that Jane killed over a dozen patients at Cambridge. One of her surviving patients, Mrs. Ophelia fin uh, Finney, spoke very candidly about what Jane had done to her. She said that after her surgery, Jane gave her some very bitter-tasting medicine for pain. As Mrs. Finney began to lose consciousness, she realized that Jane had crawled into bed with her, which is weird enough. She then stated that Jane began kissing her all over her face. Ew. Happily, one of the other staff members walked by suddenly and scared Jane off. Mrs. Finney regained consciousness the next day and believed what she had experienced had been a dream until almost 15 years later. During Jane's time at Cambridge Hospital, most of her colleagues despised her, with the exception of a few doctors who provided her with absolutely glowing recommendations. Well, which, we know who she was blowing. Right? And that allowed her to transfer to the much larger Massachusetts General Hospital to finish her nurse training. Mm. So once solidly in her role at Massachusetts General, Jane began her own her old habits. Her colleagues disliked her there as well and suspected that she was giving patients pain medication all willy-nilly. The doctors at Massachusetts General fell for Jane's act as well allowing her to fill in for the head nurse during a leave of absence, which blows my mind. It's not a great choice. It's really not. The staff believed Jane to be responsible for several deaths in her time in Massachusetts General as well. In the summer of 1890, Jane broke one of the most important rules and left the ward without permission. She was fired immediately and never received her nursing license, even though she had passed her final exam and... Her diploma had actually already been printed and signed. Wow. Mm -hmm. After a brief stint as a private care nurse, Jane returned to Cambridge Hospital that fall. In spring of 1891, she was fired from Cambridge as well because she was suspected of administering medication with reckless abandon. That rumor just seemed to follow her her whole career, so she went back to private nursing. For a few years, she was the most successful private nurse in the area, even though her employers took issue with her lying and frequent theft. Wow. Seems to track, right? So, this just seems to be a common theme with these cases where their employers just let shit slide because mm -hmm. they're fucking lazy and then, yes. and then people die. Yep. Ugh. It keeps happening. So, like, they repeat this cycle throughout their careers, yep. killing tons of people in the meantime. Yep. We're going to see that in my case, too. Oh, fun. Mm. So in her free time, Jane was kind of a partier, though. She would get trashed and spread gossip to anyone who would listen. 
And then at this point, when she goes into private nursing, we kind of see her MO shift almost as if she was no longer seeking like real reasons for killing her victims. The murders could no longer be seen as a, like they couldn't even be construed as an act of mercy on the Alden and Forum anymore. Mm. So now her murders kind of seem to be headed towards some revenge for some perceived slight, maybe. Mm. So I'm going to go through and summarize the timeline of all the murders Jane admitted to. Mind you, these are the ones that she admitted to in court. That's it. Okay. So the first was in May of 1895. Jane murdered her landlord, Israel Dunham, because he was feeble and fussy. She then moved in with Dunham's widow, Lovey, and poisoned her in 1897. Wow. In August of 1899, Jane and her foster sister, Elizabeth Brigham, planned a vacation in Cape Cod. They rented a house. During their trip, Jane slowly poisoned Elizabeth with strychnine in her food. Holy shit. When when Jane confessed to this murder, she said that this was the, quote, first victim that she actually hated. Ooh. In December of 1899, Jane poisoned a new patient named Mary McClear. McClear's murder was a bit off pattern because Jane didn't really know her. Jane was suggested to marry by her physician. In February of 1900, Jane murdered a longtime friend, Myra Connors. This was done with the intention of stealing Myra's job as a dinner lady at a parochial school. (laughs) After murdering Myra, Jane went to the dean of the school and told him Myra had gone on sabbatical and intended to recommend Jane for the job. She told the dean that Myra had instructed her on all her job duties, which was obviously a lie. The dean gave her the job on the spot because he's an idiot, and her co-workers could tell she knew next to nothing about the position and was completely incompetent. Of course. Mm -hmm. Jane actually lasted until November in that position when she was fired for, quote-unquote, financial irregularities. Oh, no. A.K.A. that bitch is stealing again. Hell yeah. (laughs) And the long litany of complaints against her from both students and staff. 1901, she poisoned her new landlords, the Beatles, and their housekeeper. But none of them died. This was all part of a plot to take the housekeeper's job. She gave Mary Sullivan, the housekeeper, just enough poison to be seen as possibly drunk. Told the Beatles that she was an alcoholic. And they fired They fired Mary Sullivan and hired Jane. While she was working for the Beatles, the woman who owned the house in Cape Cod that Jane and Elizabeth rented and vacationed in came to collect the $500 she was owed for their stay. Her name was Maddie Davis, and she stayed with the Beatles for about a week. During that week, Jane gave her some poison mineral water and then administered morphine as treatment. For the full week, Jane poisoned Mrs. Davis slowly, toying with her. She would alternate dosages, bringing her patient to consciousness and taking her right back out. Mm. Maddie Davis died on the eighth day. Damn. Following Mrs. Davis's murder, Jane moved in with the Davis family to care for Mr. Davis. Wow. I mean, a few days after moving in, Jane started a fire in her bedroom closet. Wow. The fire was quickly extinguished, much to Jane's disappointment. The following week, Jane started a fire in the pantry and then decided to go for a walk. Luckily, the Davis's neighbors saw the smoke and put out the fire. Jane attempted to burn the house down twice more to no avail. Since fire didn't work, Jane went back to her tried and true methods. She set her sights on the youngest of the Davis's adult daughters, Genevieve, who was there to support her grieving father. Jane chose to frame this murder as a suicide, saying that Genevieve was so distraught over the loss of her mother that she chose to end her life. 
Mr. Davis was next. Jane killed him less than two weeks after Genevieve. The week after that, Jane murdered the last of the Davises, their oldest daughter, Minnie. Damn. So after murdering the entire Davis family, she returned to her hometown, hoping to marry her widower brother-in-law, Ormel Brigham. At that time, Minnie's father-in-law, who was a captain <laughs> in the military, requested that Massachusetts top toxicologists come to investigate and exhume the Davis family's bodies on suspicion of poisoning. Once exhumed, a detective was assigned to follow Jane until they could nail her. Jane continued her pursuit of Ormel, even murdering his sister, who she saw as getting in the way of their eventual marriage. Jane's frustration with her brother-in-law began to build. She poisoned him and nursed him back a few times to try to prove how helpful and uh, necessary she was. Damn. At the height of her frustration, Jane chose to take a morphine overdose herself. She became very ill, but once she recovered, Ormel put her out. He was Good. like, bitch gotta go. Jane then chose to go visit an old friend in New Hampshire, Sarah Nichols. I assume to take her, murder her and take her job too, but that was never stated. <laughs> Jesus. The detective that was assigned to her followed her to New Hampshire, and on October 29, 1901, Jane was finally arrested, specifically for the murder of Minnie Davis Gibbs. On October 31st, she was arraigned and trial went on uh, through November 8th. Jane pled not guilty while the state gathered evidence. Once toxicology was completed, they found that the bodies had been involved with fluid containing a large amount of arsenic. So this put the prosecution in a hell of a bind because you can't test for an ingredient that is actually part of the embalming fluid, right? Right. So this this is what pushed Minnie Davis's Gibbs' father-in-law, Captain Gibbs, to save the day. He was the first to suggest that Jane used morphine and atropine because he had done his homework and went back and talked to people from, right. where she, from where she worked previously. The trial continued, and after an inquest, the toxicology test showed Captain Gibbs to be completely correct. The trial continued through December when the remaining Davis family members were exhumed. A grand jury heard the case, and Jane Toppin was officially charged with four counts of murder for the entire Davis family. She pled not guilty. Following a psyche eval in March of 1902, Jane was determined to be mentally ill. During the evaluation, she admitted to having irresistible sexual impulses to kill, then confessed to 11 murders. The jury deliberated for 20 minutes, and Jane <laughs> was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Jane Toppin received a life sentence in Taunton Insane Hospital and actually was so happy about this that she cried at her sentencing. She was overjoyed thinking it would be super easy to convince the hospital staff that she was completely sane and that she would be free in a few months' time. June 24th, 1902, Jane was admitted to the Taunton Insane Hospital. So what Jane didn't know is that more information would come to light from her defense lawyer who was actually also a really close friend of hers. So when she was speaking to him, his name was James Murphy, she confessed to more than 31 murders, mentioning each of the victims by name. So these are murders that they had no idea were even her responsibility they thought were accidental or were not even tested for a possible poisoning. It blows my mind. So <laughs> at this time, the researchers estimate her total body count to be between 70 to 100 murders. Yikes. The New York Journal also published Jane's full confession thanks to William Randolph Hearst. Jane stated that she wanted the panel of psychiatrists to find her insane as she wanted to outsmart 
the whole panel of experts. Like that was something she really wanted to feel superior to them, which kind of is a theme with these kind of crimes. So in the confession, Jane lovingly detailed the deep sense of pleasure that came from killing her patients. She even seemed to revel in the lack of remorse for her crimes. Like she really was very focused on, and I felt nothing. Like she just, she reiterated that multiple times. Wow. Now, in an attempt to maybe humanize herself in my mind, Jane attributed her crimes to, a, to that failed engagement I mentioned mm. all those years ago. And to me, I, I'm just, I'm gonna just give you what she said. Ugh. Jane stated, if I had been a married woman, I probably would not have killed all those people. I would have had my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. So this sounds to me really similar to those like mass shooter manifestos yeah. in the recent years. Like it feels very like red pill. Mm-hmm. It, it's icky. And I do not like it. But I feel like she was like the first fem cell. Like yeah. I'm blown away. So Jane lived out her sentence in the hospital with her mental status declining the whole time. She refused to eat at the hospital for a period of time, ironically, out of fear of being poisoned. Oh, man. <laughs> Jane Toppin died August 17th, 1938, at 84 years old. She was mostly remembered by staff as a quiet old lady, but the veteran staff members will always remember Jane's unsettling smile as she beckoned them near, whispering, Get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out in the war. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Yuck. She is fucking terrifying. Yep. Yep. So, yes, that was uh, our, fir- our first fem cell. <laughs> Honora Kelly slash Jane Toppin. Damn, Jane. Jane was, I don't know, she was very focused on... Way to be an achiever. I mean, like, I am both horrified and slightly impressed and I know how bad that sounds but like she faked her way into like a solid career and that's crazy to me wow I just I don't know (laughs) that one is conflicting that one is insane (laughs) so today I'm going to tell you about Christopher Dunch Possibly the worst neurosurgeon ever. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) So Christopher Daniel Dunch was born on April 3rd, 1971, somewhere in Montana. (laughs) Um, But he mostly grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. His father was a physical therapist and a missionary, and his mom was a teacher. He graduated from an evangelical Christian high school. Of course. And after high school, he attended Millsap College, um... And he had earned a position there on their football team squad group thingy. (laughs) Um, And while attending Millsap, he must have done something right because he ended up eventually earning himself a Division I spot at Colorado State University. So for those of you who don't know about the sports ball, (laughs) like like myself, I googled it. And according to the NCAA.org website, Division One is the highest level of intercollegiate athletics. Yep, they are the so cream of the crop. that's like a big deal that he got there. Um, Dunch would not end up staying at Colorado State. Um, eventually he would head over to Memphis State University, which is now known as University of Memphis. Mm-hmm. 
Um, in his fourth year of residency there, he was suspected of cocaine abuse and being under the influence of drugs and alcohol during his surgeries. Damn. He was required to complete an impaired physician's program, and they still allowed him to graduate. Holy shit, it's like rehab for physicians? Yep. Holy shit. Okay, wait. The fact that that even needed to be a thing... I know. <laughs> but the fact that they let this kid graduate and go on to become a medical professional mm -mm. when he was obviously showing that he did not understand the gravity of the situation. Right. Like, I just, I don't know. That, to me, seems like you're asking for trouble. Um... So, in 2010, he vision, finished his residency in the neurosurgery program at the University of Tennessee. He would also complete a fellowship there to specialize in spine stuff. For those of you who do not know what a <laughs> fellowship is, it is a super competitive thing that he would have had to have been specifically selected for after a very rigorous application process. Um, and then he would spend several years learning a fuck ton about spines yeah. and whatever his specialty was. I like that you call it spine stuff. I'm I mean, tickled by this. I mean, you know. I, But you're right. That is what it is. Spine um, stuff. So, a fun fact. Upon graduation, Dr. Dum Dum had completed about 100 surgeries. Jesus. So that sounds pretty good, right? 100 surgeries. That's like a big number. <clears throat> the thing is, the average neurosurgery resident will participate in over 1,000 oh, before they graduate. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. After graduation and finishing his fellowship, he kind of dove into his work. His name would be eventually be attached to many, many, many papers and medical patents. He also sometime, somehow during this time amassed a massive amount of debt, like around $500,000. Fuck! I can't even imagine. Dude, and I'm like crying because I owe like $65,000 in student loans so far. I know. That's insane. That's insane. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to give neurosurgery a try <laughs> to solve my financial woes. As you do. So he moved to Dallas with his girlfriend, who had grown up there, and he took a job at Baylor. Like, the school? Yep. Like, wow. Like, the Baylor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so he took a position as a minimally invasive spinal surgeon with a pretty sick salary of 600k a year. Golly! I know. We did the wrong choices. We totally did. So you guys have to understand something. This dude looked like a dream on paper, and Baylor was stoked to have him. For good reason. He came with 15 years of training from medical school through his fellowship, he had an extensive resume, and he claimed to have graduated magna cum laude from St. Jude's with a doctorate in microbiology. Golly! I know. He looked amazing, no right? No kidding! So he spent many years um, during his degree program studying stem cells, and he also came with tons of recommendations from previous colleagues, allegedly. I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> I know, listening to yours, I was like, oh man, this is so interesting. <laughs> so, this is where it starts to get sad. Okay. So once Dunch got settled in at Baylor, he was not well-liked by his co-workers. So, Surgeon Randall Kibbe remembered Dunch as someone who talked a lot of shit for someone who was so new to actually performing surgeries. 
and he recalled that Dumpch's skills were majorly lacking in the OR. Ooh. Yikes. So during his tenure at Baylor, he would maim or kill almost all of his 40 patients that he operated on between 2011 and 2013. Damn! Some were paralyzed. Some suffered permanent nerve damage. Uh. Um, one died from a stroke that um, was caused by blood loss. Yep. And then another one died simply from blood loss. Um, one of these patients, not so fun fact, um, was actually his childhood best friend who ended up as a quadriplegic and has since passed away from complications of his injuries. Oh, that poor man. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. So Time Magazine talked to Dr. Kirby, the one that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, he's the one that's played by Christian Slater in the show right now. That's on, <gasps> yes! he, on Peacock. Okay. Um, Got it. So um, Dr. Kirby claims that he saw Dunch botch a simple procedure to remove a disc. He used a different type of instrument than you would typically choose and then proceeded to fuck some shit up. <laughs> that, that particular patient still suffers from immense pain and cannot get around without a cane. Of course. Imagine going into your surgery with the hope that you're finally going to feel better and then you wake up feeling worse than before thanks to your doctor being a closeted moron. Right. It's terrible. At one point at Baylor, he was once again accused of drug abuse. And around this time, a coworker described him partying all night on cocaine and alcohol and then heading to work to perform, perform a surgery in the morning with no sleep. Oh my God. So after this coworker ratted him out, Baylor restricted him to mostly minor procedures. <laughs> the very first surgery that he performed under his new restricted protocol, he went in to fix a compressed nerve. This should have been a very easy procedure. Mm -hmm. However... This is a patient that he ended up clipping a blood vessel and they bled out. For fuck's sake. Yes. Oh my god. So at this point, Baylor realizes, oh shit, we can't let this guy keep continuing doing what he's doing. And they conduct an investigation and they determine that Dunch does not meet their standard of care and recommended that he be terminated. Somehow, instead, he was allowed to resign in 2012. You know what? So, obviously, they took his license, right? You'd think. Mm -mm. Jesus. He went on his merry way. He voluntarily resigned, so Baylor was under no legal obligation to report him to the national database that keeps track of malpractice. Oh, my God. And he was also not reported to the medical board. He quickly found employment at Dallas Medical Center. Oh. Once there, he was allowed to resume operating before his reference check was even complete. Spoiler alert, that wasn't a great choice. In July... He would end up performing an operation on a patient who would lose a ton of blood during surgery, so much that they lost consciousness post-op and had to be transferred to another facility where they died. Oh my gosh. In another incident operating on a different patient, fellow staff in the OAR were unsure that he was placing hardware correctly. They said that he seemed to be drilling a lot and kept removing screws and replacing them. Oof. This is not an Ikea dresser, no! sir. No! This patient woke up in severe pain and unable to move. Oh, that's horrible. So get this. The Texas Medical Board did not receive a single complaint against Dr. Dum Dum until after these two botched procedures at DMC. Okay, now that's... That's fucked up. That's ridiculously... Dr. Kirby, who I talked about before, mm -hmm. and a colleague, Dr. Henderson, who is played by Alec Baldwin on the show, both attempted to repair some of his screw-ups and 
they were so terrified by what they saw, they immediately reported him. Um, so months went by without any incident, and then at the end of 2012, Dr. Kirby receives a referral to look at a patient who had their vocal cords and an artery cut during what should have been a routine neck surgery. I'm sorry. You say vocal cords? Vocal cords. He cut the fucking vocal cords. That's... That's basic anatomy. Oh, my But wait. God. But wait. There's more. Uh... So, this brings us to 2013 and the awful climax. Oh, God. Dr. Dunch at this point is well known in the medical community as the guy you do not refer your patients to until he finally gets reported to the databank. Now the heat is on, right? So, the state of Texas Medical Board investigated his cases... But it didn't matter. He got hired at University General Hospital, a hospital that does not exist anymore. So it was in an OR there that he mistook a patient's neck muscle for a tumor. Oh, for fuck's sake. This is something that absolutely 100% should have never happened. Doctors Kirby and Henderson stated that this error is akin to attempted murder. It is. Like, this is so basic, like... I could point to a neck muscle. That's what I'm saying. You know, like, it. this should not have ever happened. If a lay person can tell the difference. Yeah. So, in June of 2013, his medical license is finally suspended. In December of 2013, it was finally revoked, which, you know what, it's nice to finally see him afflicted by some consequences. Jesus. Shit starts falling apart in his life. Um, his wife filed for divorce and took the kids. He starts drinking and gets heavy into more drugs and then ultimately was caught shoplifting a bunch of random ass stuff that he could have easily afforded from Walmart. Um, Walmart? From Walmart. Oh, wow. It's like a bunch of mainstays, towel holders and Yeah, shit. it was like dumb shit. Like, they, <laughs> there was um, a picture floating around of him, like the security cam mm -hmm. with the shopping cart and it was just nonsense. Oh my God. Like, I don't know. So, but meanwhile, Kirby and Henderson are cooperating wholeheartedly with prosecutors to make sure that this guy is nailed to the wall. Texas was super overwhelmed, to say the least. Mm. Uh, they had never handled a case like this before, and there were a ton of gray areas in state laws that made it very difficult for them to decide what to charge him with. Um, because it's just the way that malpractice laws are, and like, mm -hmm. it's very, it's very tricky. I imagine it would um, be because you, you have to you have to adjust for the severity of what he did. Right. Like, I feel like that shouldn't just be malpractice. Right. So what they ended up doing is they charged him with five counts of aggravated assault and one count of harm to an elderly person. Mm -hmm. And they chose these charges because they would be the easiest to get a conviction. Right. And what they ended up doing first is they tried him on the one count of harm with an elder against an elderly person. Mm-hmm. So, um, the prosecutors needed to be able to establish a pattern of deadly deeds. Several of his former patients gladly testified against him. Many family members of lost loved ones also testified. And also Kimberly Morgan, his former assistant and the woman he cheated on his wife with. Right. Um, during her testimony, Kimberly shared a part of a disgusting email that Dunch had written her. It said... <clears throat> Unfortunately, you cannot understand that I am building an empire, and I am so far outside the box that the earth is small and the sun is bright. I am ready to leave the love and kindness and goodness and patience that I mix with everything else that I am and become a cold-blooded killer. Oof. It was, as you can imagine, some pretty damning stuff. Homeboy was found guilty of causing harm to an elderly person, and... Um, 
they ended up getting sentenced to life in prison. Wow. So, yeah. That is intense. I know. Could you fucking imagine? That... There were so many fuck-ups in that... There are so many injuries and deaths that could have been prevented. Yes. And, like, what the fuck is wrong with the leadership at these hospitals? I know. I'm sure that they've learned a lot. But the fucked up part is, like, this was only nine years ago. This was right. happening. Like, our kids existed at this. Like, that's yeah. what puts things in perspective for me. Like, it's not like your case where it's, like, the 1800s yeah. and things were harder to still, track. And... Right. These people are still suffering or dying. Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah. I'm, I'm just... I'm flummoxed. It boggles my mind. Oh my god. So yeah. God that... damn, Baylor. Come on now. I was like, the Baylor? Yes! And like, they are... They're very well known for being... They're a big being, deal for, for med being, school. Like, ahead of the curve on a lot mm -hmm. of things. Like, they are a very trusted, very well-respected institution. Absolutely. I just... Yeah. That's was... bonkers. Yeah. Ugh. So... You. Psychos with scalpels, everyone. Yes. Holy shit, dude. Um, as always, <laughs> if you are enjoying what you are hearing, please, please, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen and give us a like and a review with some words. Help us grow a little bit and get seen. Um, all of our social is... SSS Podcast 13. And um, we look forward to seeing you here next week. Oh, yeah. <laughs>